0: Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Natchang Rinpoche, chapter 12. Yeah, Rinpoche laughed and finished his beer. Now it is time for you to leave. Maybe you come back tomorrow. Chapter 12, the Golok Standoff. Yeah, still you come back. (laughs) Ha! maybe you think this is good i hope so rimshay yeah you hope you hope you hope and also you fear anyway do you think you will ever be anything but a tom Yor? that was a loaded question for sure but there was only one answer Yes, Rinpoche, I think that I will cease to be an idiot. If you continue to give me guidance, I added as a quick qualifying addendum. Rinpoche shook his head. No! Wrong! He roared. Guidance will not help you. All you will learn is how to stop looking like a tommur. All you will learn is how to stop speaking like a tommyaw. Then you will be a bigger tommyaw than you were before. Now, he shouted, you tell me what you need if you are not to be tommyaw. This was looking bad for me. I had no immediate answer. Answer! Answer now or leave! "'I must see for myself what is in my mind "'in order not to mix ideas and end up confused. "'Ya, ya, ya, Tomyore, now you have learned a new trick. "'This is what you think I want to hear.' Rinpoche stared at me with unblinking eyes for a long time before he eventually spoke. "'Your answer is not wrong.' but you think in tricks like a trained monkey anyhow to see clearly you must sit do you sit yes rinpoche yes rinpoche he mimicked shaking his head in an ostentatious simulation of weariness yeah anyway you must have a clear mind you must be undisturbed by thought. Only then will you know what is in your mind and how what is in your mind is different from what I tell you. This must come toward Zogchen. So, anyway, I ask again. Do you now think you will ever be anything but a Tomyur? I don't know, Rinpoche. All I know is that I will sit and I will endeavour to see what is in my mind. Ya, yeah, ya, yeah, yeah. Now, as again you do not run away, there is maybe something to say of Paltrow. But you must listen carefully, he shouted. Rinpoche was silent for some minutes, and then he commenced. So Paltrol was often wandering in Golok, so he saw much of the life there amongst the nomads and brigands. He knew their lives very well, and he knew the land very well. Paltrol caught a sound on the wind. There were horsemen in the distance. Hardly an unusual occurrence, but Paltrell took special note of them, as the horses shambled across the plain. He sat on the ground to await their arrival, making himself comfortable in the exact middle of the track on which he'd been walking. He'd reached a juncture at which the path plunged through a narrow defile between outcrops of rock. Not the ideal place to avoid being seen, or to hide from brigands. He watched the approach of the riders as they emerged out of the blur of the horizon, first as an agglomeration of colours, then gradually as four distinct horsemen. After a while, it became apparent that they were a group of young men from one of the fierce feuding tribes of Golok. They wore rifles slung over their shoulders. Their belts were hung about with knives and swords. Chinese and Mongolian blades of various shapes and sizes caught the sun and flashed. The riders in turn spotted the lone shaggy individual sitting in their path and sensed something slightly peculiar about the situation. Why was someone sitting in the middle of the track? Why did he not move when it was evident that he'd observed their approach? Could it be that this was a challenge, or was the old man insane? There was about enough room for two horses to pass abreast through the defile, but with an old nakpa occupying the central position, even to pass him on one side or the other would need to be undertaken with care. The horses trotted in leisurely manner toward Paltrell, but he showed no sign of moving aside. The horsemen halted momentarily some short distance away, and sat looking quizzically at the imperturbable character who held the road before them. It was now obvious to them that he had no intention of moving, so they exchanged a few jocular comments between themselves. Their horses champed, whinnied and tore up tussocks of grass. Paltrell simply gazed at them without speaking. An uneasy hiatus ensued in which they all looked at each other. Then the calm was shattered. The riders reared their horses, broke into a gallop and charged down into the ravine. Paltrell sat perfectly still in the swirling dust as the horses thundered by on either side. Their hooves cut close enough that a stray clip could have smashed his skull. Having passed by, the four riders wheeled round to observe the effect of their charge. Paltrell had not moved. A second wary interval followed. "'How did you like that, old ragbag?' called the foremost rider. Paltrell made no reply, so after a brief moment the rider continued. "'Tell me, doddering relic, have you no fear?' he laughed." or are you just an idiot? Paltrell placed a hand on the ground behind him and leaned back on his arm. He gave the impression of luxuriating in the leisureliness of the movement. He inclined his face toward them obliquely, as if he had no real interest in giving them his full attention. Fear, he replied, as as if he was unfamiliar with the word. He peered inside his sheepskin coat as if he might find some fear there. No, he shrugged, can't say as I have any fear. But as to idiocy, well now, I'll just have to leave that to your own undoubted sagacity. It's all the same to me. The horseman's amused expressions froze slightly on hearing these words. Was this an ambush? Were there warriors hiding to be called forth at this man's command? They squinted into the sun. They were not used to this kind of reply. Although Paltrell's words hadn't disturbed them over much, they couldn't immediately come up with a neat retort. So Paltrell tossed out a suggestion in an offhand way. Perhaps you're afraid, he chuckled. At least, it seems you can't quite manage to look me in the eye. This prompted a yell from the riders who bore down on him again, coating Paltrell with another layer of dust. Paltrell turned slowly to face the men again, and this time he was facing the sun. If we weren't the finest horsemen in Gollock, the leader of the horsemen jeered, you'd be a dead old idiot rather than a barely living poltroon. Paltrell did not seem very impressed. Is that a fact? he yawned with somewhat massive disinterest. The horseman did not fail to notice that Paltrell was observing him with unblinking eyes, even though he was staring directly into the sun. They observed each other coolly while the dust settled. Do you still have no fear? Poutrell smiled. Don't reckon I do. What about you? Least you can keep your eyes open now. The rider found himself balanced on a taut emotional wire between amusement and anger. He was beginning to find this exchange intriguing. You run your mouth pretty reckless for a man who don't carry weapons. Poutrel smiled. You're a most observant young man. The rider's mouth moved in a curious way. It was uncertain whether he was smiling or sneering. Even this close to death you still say you have no fear? Paltrell's reply was immediate, if languid. What's there in death that I should fear? Unlike you, I have nothing to gain or lose. The horseman began to wonder whether he was addressing some old warrior or some religious type and replied, you have your life to lose, my friend. Paltrell laughed, but I've got far less of it to lose than you. You are young and I am old, but what's my life or yours but a bubble in the current of a river? Or the flickering of a flame. The tone of this exchange was beginning to wax mystical and the young man was beginning to feel slightly strange as if he weren't quite sure of where the course of events was going to lead. So if you don't fear us and you have no fear of death tell me then is there anything you do fear? Paltrell cast his gaze regretfully toward the ground. There you have me, he sighed. I do have one terrible fear. And that would be? I fear I may not be able to bring peace to those families whose need for revenge causes such suffering in these parts. This was a totally unexpected answer. It caused the riders grand curiosity and slight unease. Maybe this really was some sort of drooptop sitting on the ground in front of them. But if so, why did he conduct himself like a desperado? They were not used to religious types having such an accentuated degree of swagger or bravado but this one behaved with the downright arrogance of a brigand chieftain. That's an interesting answer, Arme. Who are you? Why do you sit here and let us ride round you? And how do you come to speak with the authority of a chieftain? Poutle placed his hands on his knees and replied, I'm an insignificant resident of awareness and... I sit here merely to inconvenience you with the conversation of an old man. I have no authority other than that which places my motivation outside the realm of comprehension. But what of your authority? I sense that yours may be the power to rid me of this one terrible fear. The horseman was now teetering between fascination and bewilderment. And he asked, just how can I do that, Ame? The inquiry was one of exasperated yet reverential incredulity. Powtrell gazed at him for a moment and shouted aloud Ha The sound echoed on the mountain sides. That he pronounced with solemnity, is entirely up to you. The horseman inclined his head slightly, listening intently. You command your own life and the lives of many others, Paltrow continued. You who have no fear, ride on out of here. Do what lies within your power. I can say no more. At this, the three other riders reared their horses for another charge, but their leader raised his hand to hold them back. The sun dipped below the distant crags and Paltrell swung himself round in order to allow the riders to pass. They walked their horses down into the defile, giving Paltrell a wide berth. Once past him they broke into a trot, then a canter, and eventually they galloped into the distance. Their leader stopped at the head of the ridge and looked back for a moment, but Paltrell was gone. He was nowhere to be seen on the road. It was as if the horseman had dreamed the whole episode. They rode home in silence and never spoke of their meeting. Poutrall never saw the young men again, but later he came to hear that the blood feud in Mahog, which had lasted over a century, had been ended. The families had made an agreement to put aside their long held disputes and bitterness in order to coexist without continual bloodshed. Rinpoche, I chimed in after a polite pause, it seems that Tsar Paltral was showing these young warriors a face they could understand. He was completely fearless, like a warrior but he also spoke in a very haughty way. I can understand him showing lack of fear as a way of communicating, but I don't understand why he displayed what seemed to be arrogance. He obviously wanted to bring peace to the area and to influence the leader of the warriors to end the blood feud, but I would have thought that his aggressive stance would have made an obstacle rather than aiding his intention. There must be some reason why Paltrow was speaking in this way. Rinpoche made no comment on what I'd said. What's so interesting about a man who's fearless sitting in the path of charging horses? It could merely be recklessness. Suddenly my mind went blank and all I could do was repeat the question internally. What is so interesting about a man who is fearless sitting in the path of charging horses apart from recklessness? I really couldn't think of anything cogent but I knew I shouldn't dawdle with my response. Well I guess it might be interesting why someone would do that. I mean given the choice of sitting out of the way of the horses. So why doesn't Paltrow tell them why he is there? If he wants to show them he's brave and that he wants them to stop the feud, why doesn't he just tell them? For once, the whole thing clicked together for me. It's the curiosity value of it, isn't it? And so, Rinpoche barked, well, Paltrow needs to keep the warrior interested for long enough to make him question himself. What a brilliant strategy this was. Paltrow was keeping the warrior interested, keeping him guessing, making it worth his while to ask questions, causing him just enough offence to be intrigued and only then introducing the idea that he might be a yogi. Rinpoche seemed pleased with my analysis for once. I began to get the feeling that I was getting somewhere with these stories and my efforts to get behind them. But then a further question occurred to me. There's still the issue though of why Paltrell concludes his exchange by saying you command your own life and the lives of many others. You who have no fear, ride on out of here and do whatever lies within your power. Why did he say that when the warrior had asked him point blank how he could allay Paltrell's fear? Why didn't Paltrell simply grasp the opportunity by giving him some some suggestions as to how he could play a part in ending the feud? Rinpoche laughed. Yeah, 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 you don't know warriors. You also know nothing of gollocks. You don't give advice to warriors, or use unnecessary words. It would have been weakness for Paltrow to have made a request. Instead, he showed confidence that the warrior would know best what to do, saying... You command your own life and the lives of others. This was a fascinating perspective and it triggered a flood of ideas as to how the rest of Paltrell's actions might be unravelled. So perhaps it was also important that Paltrell didn't give advice to the warrior in front of his own tribesmen. Otherwise they could have seen him as following the dictates of a stranger and that would have hindered actions that the warrior may have tried putting into effect. Rinpoche nodded as I spoke, and then he poured out two beers. I thought, as was often the case, that the pouring of beers was the conclusion of our discussion, but Rinpoche went further. You know, it's not always good to give advice in specific about how things should be done. It's not always wise to supply every detail. If advice is given that leaves no room for manoeuvre, you make everything into form, and then form becomes emptiness. Sometimes it's better to allow emptiness in order for the form of compassion to arise according to circumstances that are outside your control. I thought about this for a moment. But wouldn't the warrior have benefited from Paltrow's wisdom in terms of finding a way to end the feud? Rinpoche shook his head. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, it's a Tomyore who doesn't make use of the fact that everyone has their own knowledge. Paltrow, wise as he was, couldn't know every part of every situation. He had to trust in emptiness maybe you will often find yourself in situations where there's too much that you cannot understand at such times you may have to trust in giving generalized guidance and incomplete directions sometimes there are no good answers to human problems sometimes there are too many then rimshay told me of another similar story Paltrow had brought about the end of another blood feud in Gollock by lying across a path. The warriors asked Paltrow whether he was sick or whether he was an imbecile. I'm sane, but sick, Paltrow replied. Yet it isn't the kind of sickness that would be contagious to brave young warriors like you. Rinpoche stopped to sip his beer. See how strong Paltrell's intelligence is. Then, he said, this isn't the kind of sickness from which I ever want to recover. The young warriors laugh and ask, what sort of goddamn sickness is this then? To which Paltrell replies, oh, nothing so terrible, just the sickness of kindness towards all beings. This stopped the warrior's thought for a moment. Rinpoche took another sip of beer. Paltrow's statement resulted in the young men doing whatever they could to end the feud as before. We sat in silence for a while in which I played with ideas of lamas having a plethora of roles as invisible social workers, invisible politicians and invisible diplomats. So, Rinpoche asked, which story do you prefer and why? I preferred the first one. There was more in the story to uncover. Ah, he replied with surprising energy. Maybe kindness is not such a shock to you. Maybe you've already caught this sickness. Maybe you are a kind man like you say. I laughed, quite surprising myself. I hope so. Always you hope, but also you fear. That was a twist, but I had an answer. Yes, Rinpoche, hope and fear are still there, as are praise and blame, meeting and parting. Rinpoche interrupted my flow. Yeah, ya, yeah, yeah, I know this list. Why do you play this Tom Yor trick of list giving? For me, it's not just a list, I stated. I was anxious that Rinpoche didn't think I was trying to impress him by babbling cliches at him. It's something I consider often in terms of how I am When I see the Jigten Chugye in myself, it reminds me where I am and I find that useful. Rinpoche nodded, yeah, as you say. Anyhow, I must always check that you are not a Tomyur. Today it seems you are not too much a Tomyur. Maybe also tomorrow, we will see. Whenever I remember this story, I look at my life for symptoms of this rare disease, kindness, and whatever signs of health I exhibit cause me to do whatever I can to stimulate new areas of infection. The most saddening aspect of life for me is to witness immunity to the disease of kindness, either in myself or others. Although I initially preferred the first story, the second has caused me to reflect a great deal on the nature of kindness and how it can be encouraged in the world. The idea of kindness as an illness, with all its attendant concepts of infection and contagion, is highly creative. This manner of expression is a brilliant example of how Tantra turns language on its head. It uses violent rage to describe clarity and sickness to describe health. Sometimes you have to spread the illness of kindness in the guise of a desperado and sometimes in the guise of a Tom